Amen. Uh, well, there was a, a recent Babylon Bee uh, post about how a pastor was, was like surreptitiously sneaking in Metallica references in all of his sermons. And if there was ever an opportunity for me to sneak in Metallica references, today would be the day. For those of you who don't know, there's a Metallica song, The Four Horsemen. Uh, I didn't think I could get away with playing it as a worship song, so at least I thought I could reference it. Um, uh, this, this, we're we're going to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse today, which is such a massive image. It's so iconic culturally that there have been all sorts of uh, interpretations and imitations and people latching onto that imagery. Uh, it is one of the, one, an image from the Bible that is known culture-wide. Uh, and in that, there's been tons of different interpretations of what these four horsemen must mean or might mean. So let's remember last week, we talked about visions. We had vision 101, as it were, talking about the function, the purpose, how the visions in Revelations work, and Revelation work. Uh, and today, we get into the vision sequences in earnest. And last week, we learned that the visions are symbolic visions that are teaching us about the patterns and principles of spiritual warfare in this current age. So let's listen now intently together as we listen to this vision that is speaking about those principles and patterns uh, that are happening now. Would you please, if you're able, stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And now I watched... When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, we just, we're in the middle of hurricane season, doesn't really affect us on the West Coast, but if you're on the East Coast, they just had a massive hurricane Dorian that just ripped through the Bahamas uh, and went uh, into the United States. There's another storm shaping up called Umberto, great name for a storm. Uh, and whenever these storms, whenever these storms are particularly bad, and I, this one really leveled the Bahamas and, and caused so much damage and destruction and pain and suffering uh, and even death. Whenever there's a massive world-level catastrophic, even some people would say biblical, 
level catastrophic event, whether it's a hurricane, uh, whether it's a disease or an epidemic or an outbreak of contagious disease or just or you know, anything, school shootings, tragedy, chaos, um, hardship, suffering, pain, what the Bible, all those things, the Bible calls tribulations, which is really any experience of suffering, distress, affliction, trouble, and persecution. Whenever any of those tribulations happen in a major way in the aftermath of it, the question always comes up from somewhere, where is God? Where is God in all this? How could God allow so much suffering and destruction and pain and tribulation to occur? Uh, It's a fair question from our experience as we see these things happening as they happen to us. And we know things about God. We know and we believe that God is good. We know that he's all-powerful. And so it's a fair question to ask, how is it that God could allow these things to happen? Um... Some answers, some, some answer the question uh, by saying, well, uh, the reality of the world is that there is a balance between good and evil, and that the goal of life is really to achieve, really to achieve a balance in the force. The whole Star Wars uh, uh, franchise is built on that idea of achieving balance of the force where, where good and evil check each other in counterbalance so that neither can gain the upper hand, which in the abstract sounds interesting, but in real life that becomes difficult because if you say that good is checking evil so that evil doesn't get the upper hand, then you also have to say that evil is checking good and good so that good can't get the upper hand. And so it, it were, it's an it's a, it's a interesting abstract ideal until real suffering hits you. People can't, you can't live with that. No one can really say to themselves in the midst of tragedy, wow, I'm really glad that evil is here to check the good so it doesn't get the upper hand. Um, that's more of an Eastern thought, that we're, it's coming into the West. Uh, but in, in, in real life, for us, when real trouble hits, we tend to slip into our Western ways of thought. And there's two options on the table. A lot of people say because... Uh, of these tragedies and tribulations in the world, that just must mean that God is not there. He's just not there. Either he's absent, uh, either he's just not involved, or he's just, just straight up doesn't exist in the world. But what about for us believers who are convinced that God exists? We can't really take that option. What about us believers who are convinced that not only God is there, uh, but that he's good? And the only other option really left for us and the option that we slip into more often than not is to reason, well, I know God's there. I know this suffering has happened to me. Uh, That must mean he just doesn't care. He must not care. I'm not important. He's dropped the ball. He's forgotten about me. Something like that. That's, I think, more often, that's that's what I slip into. Uh, And I think for believers, that is the thing that we most often slip into when faced with real real trouble, with real tribulation, with real suffering. But there's another answer. There's another answer that's better than that answer. It's a lot more difficult at first, 
but ultimately it's more beautiful uh, because it is the truth. It's the way God has made the world. What if I told you that tribulation and the suffering from tribulation actually was really good evidence that God is there and not only that, that he does care, that he does care about you. What if it was possible to say to yourself uh, and believe it in the bottom of your heart, in the hardest tribulation that you were going through, to say to yourself, I know, uh, no matter what disappointment you could get, that you could honestly say to yourself, I know that God is with me in this. I know that he's working this out for the good, and I know that I'm going to be okay. What if you were able to say that? Well, the reality is, the truth is, the Bible says, yes, we can say that. And that, believe it or not, is really the big idea that the story of the four horsemen is trying to get across. Uh, It's talking about tribulation and suffering in the world. Uh, The deep secret of it, the mystery of it. Who's in control of that? Uh, What's the purpose of it, if there is any purpose of it? Those are the questions it answers, and that's what we're going to talk about. So first, first thing we're going to talk about is the deep secret. We'll call the deep secret of tribulation and suffering, which is who's in control. Before we get into the description of the four horsemen, I want to do a quick thought experiment with everybody. I want everyone to think about, real quick, the last time you got really mad at God. And I don't mean annoyed. I don't even mean mad. I mean mad, mad. Really mad at God. And don't try to pretend like you don't ever get mad at God. <laughs> what was it? What? Just not, don't, spe- don't say it out loud. <laughs> What was that thing that made you so mad at God? What, what was it? And think about it. If you think about it, what, why, why did that thing cause you to be so mad at God? If you ask that question, most likely the answer you'll get, if you bring it down to the bottom, is that we believe that God is in control of all tribulation and suffering, and we believe because he is good, he is therefore obligated obligated to eliminate it, and not just eliminate it, but eliminate it right now. I think that's our core belief. So hold that thought for a moment as you think about what it was that you got really mad about at God last time, and let's listen to the four horsemen and what they are, because chances are you're going to find that thing in this list, okay? Ready? So here we go, four horsemen of the apocalypse. First, I want to talk about the timeline. Some people think as, uh, that this is uh, a vision that John had of something long in the future. But it actually, there's a time stamp on this. When do these seals get broken open? If you read chapter 5, Christ ascends to heaven. He's given all authority and power. He takes the scroll from God. And then immediately, he starts cracking open seals, right? So all we have to do to ask ourselves, when is this happening, is ask ourselves, when did Christ ascend to heaven? And that tells us, right after that, he started cracking open these seals. So this is the experience of this age, what the apostles and the writers of the New Testament called the last days, the latter days, what even the prophets called the latter days, are the church age. And it began at Jesus' ascension. So first, cracks open the first seal, out comes a white horse. 
Now, last week, last week I told you uh, that that was Jesus. Well, I lied. Uh, I didn't really lie, but in my study this week, I was convinced otherwise. I believed it was Jesus because this is the, the big picture of the four horsemen is God waging war against the hostile forces of the earth, and that's true. And I thought that was Jesus leading the charge. But the thing that changed my mind is this. In the Gospels, whenever Jesus talks about the tribulations, trials of this age, he always starts off by saying, beware of false Christs who come in my name and don't follow them because they're, they're imitators, they're false. And so this white horse looks just like Jesus. It goes out acting just like Jesus. It's a picture of false religion. It's a picture of spiritual disinformation. It's destructive heresy. It's pollution of the teachings of the church in in counterfeit and compromised forms, which as we read through the letters to the seven churches, that's the big, that's what they were up against, compromised, corrupted forms of Christianity that did not save but presented a viable alternative to the truth so that you could avoid persecution and suffering. That's what that white horse is. Counterfeit Christianity going out throughout the earth. Second seal, cracks it open, a red horse comes out. The red horse is given a sword and allowed to take peace from the earth. This is violent conflict, all kinds of violent conflict, all the way from world wars down to interpersonal conflicts to the fight that you had in your family last night. (laughs) Third seal cracks open. There's a black horse. uh, And it's described as having a scale in his hands. In the ancient world, a scale was representative of famine. And that's what happens. There's a voice that calls out and says, a quart of wheat for a denarius three quarts of barley for a denarius, don't hurt the oil and the wine. A denarius was a day's wage, and that's a a picture of uh, a whole day's wage only being able to purchase you the very basic sustenance of life, just a quart quart of of wheat that would feed you and your family for the day. Uh, However, when it says don't harm the oil and the wine, it talks about luxury items and the goods of, of of the very rich, were not hurt or not harmed. So it's not just a picture of famine. It's a picture of famine that's caused by injustice and persecution. And third, the last one is the pale horse. The, it really means uh, a greenish-gray color. It's the, it's the color of, of, a, of a dead body. If you were to be walking down the trail from Jerusalem and saw a dead body on the side of the road, that's the color of this horse. It's greenish gray, the color of a corpse. Uh, And it's presented as pestilence or disease, something really what we would call uh, epidemic or pandemic, contagious disease. However, the horse is kind of bundled up saying that this disease follows sword and famine and pestilence. So it's kind of a, a combination horse. The horse at the end is a vision of all the misery and all the suffering and all the destruction that's being caused uh, all in one. The result is misery and death, sickness, hardship, 
financial struggle, injustice, interpersonal conflicts, uh, spiritual disinformation and lying to God's people. Somewhere in there, your thing that you're mad about a God is probably in that list somewhere. Well, here's the thing I want, I need to point out. And here's why this is difficult at first. Who is issuing the commands? You read it first, you might think, well, this is just a vision of, like, of the devil and his evil forces marching out to make war on God's people. But who is issuing the commands? Uh, it's Jesus cracking open the seal and then one of the four living creatures shouting out, come, issuing the command. But if you read it closely, you see that they're being given things by God, a crown, a sword, uh, and, and, and the clincher is this, in the black horse, when the black horse rides out, there is a voice that comes from the midst of the four living creatures that says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and don't harm the oil and the wine. Who is sitting in the midst of the four living creatures? That's Jesus. Jesus' voice is issuing that command. And that's what's hard to think about. Let me read the law passage again that Brian read earlier in our service. It's from Isaiah 45. This is one of my favorite verses because it just rocks. It's disorienting to us in our conceptions of God and what God does. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Wow. Now think about your thing, what it was you're mad at God about. And you were probably mad at God because you thought something along the lines of, why would God allow this to happen to me? But it's way worse. <laughs> it's worse than that. God didn't just allow it. God ordains it. He foreordains it. In some cases, he causes it. And in whatever it is, he orchestrates it. Now maybe you're saying, wow, Rob, I was mad before. Now I'm straight up furious. <laughs> Why would you even say that to us? How could that even be possible? Well, the Bible is really clear that God is never responsible for evil. He is never the cause of sin. However, it does say in these passages that God is orchestrating all of it. That there is real evil in the world and God is choosing to let that evil run its course for his purposes uh, but in the midst of that evil running his course, he is orchestrating it. Think about a conductor of an orchestra. You know, a conductor, if you've been to the symphony, the conductor stands up front, 
Funniest conductor joke I've ever heard was instructions for a conductor, wave stick until music stops, turn and bow. <laughs> Funny, but it's not true. Conductors are actually brilliant musicians. They come in with arrangements. They are the ones controlling the pace, the tempo, controlling the symphony as it plays out. Now imagine a conductor uh, who is conducting a symphony and two-thirds of the musicians are evil and they have decided to destroy the symphony by playing dis, dis, uh, dis, uh, just ca cacophony of awful sound, discordant, awful sounds. And yet the conductor was so skilled uh, that he, had the, he knew about it ahead of time. He had the proper arrangement so that as they did this, he was able to weave that discordant sound into the symphony and create something stunning and beautiful and use their very evil and wicked intentions to create his master symphony. The evil and the discord is really there, and yet at the end of the day, to the dismay of the evil musicians, God is able to take all of their most well-intentioned, well-planned evil and turn it into his perfect symphony. That's the kind of power that we're talking about. That is what I mean when I say that God is orchestrating evil in the world. However, there's more than that. He has also, and he has also issued creational sanctions. Think of North Korea, Iran, uh, international, uh, the United Nations gets together and issues sanctions against these nations to make it difficult for them to continue with what they're doing in the fall. That's what God has done. He has, he has frustrated the creation, Paul says. Frustrated the creation, caused hardship in the world, caused plants to not grow as well as they should, caused destructive weather patterns, caused all of these creational elements that cause tribulation to, as a sanction against the hostile forces in the world, to make it difficult to continue in the rebellion. Uh, that's what the curse is. And so, you know, maybe that makes you mad. Maybe you're like, yeah, I was mad before, now I'm really mad. <laughs> Now that I understand the bigger picture of this, God, isn't God obligated to stop that now? Well, one of our, Tim Keller, one of our pastors in New York City, has this dilemma that he brings out. He says, look, if you are mad enough, if you, are, if you, uh, if you, if you blame God for tr this trouble and tribulation and suffering, that means that you are necessarily ascribing him uh, the power to be in control of it, and that's true. However, if you do that, if he's powerful enough to be responsible for it, he is also powerful enough to have wisdom and knowledge and purpose beyond our comprehension. And so you have to, you, you have to trust him or not trust him. Uh, and so what is it? Why would God, why is God doing it like this? Why is God doing this? What is it that God knows that we don't know that is uh, causing him to carry out this plan the way he's carrying out? And that's the second part. 
really the deep purpose of tribulation. The deep purpose of tribulation, the first part of that is to purge out the false. Uh, if you're a fan of World War II movies, Band of Brothers, Fury, Saving Private Ryan, all the greats, there's always scenes where American forces plow through Belgium and French town as they purge uh, Nazi soldiers out and bringing devastation and wreckage in their wake. And there's always a scene at the end where the main American forces are coming into town and the French villagers are waving American flags and they're overjoyed and cheering the Americans as they come into the town. Now, think about it. What if their town was destroyed? What if the French people came out and they were like, why did you destroy our town? But they don't do that. They're cheering. They're joyful because they've been liberated. Why is it? Because their context is they understand they're in the middle of a war. They can see it. And so their context helps them to have a right understanding of the destruction and the warfare that's churning out and that has left their homes and left them in tribulation and suffering. It's inevitable. And yet they rejoiced in their liberation. Uh, in our culture, which is based on consumerism, it's really hard. That's, that's our expectation. That's how we see uh, our lives. And so our expectation for everyday life is that things will continue to get more prosperous, limited only by our efforts and our technology. However, the key, first key to understanding the purposes of God is that even though we can't see it like the French villagers can, we are in the middle of a spiritual war. And so, yes, God is controlling all tribulation and suffering. However, he doesn't have a responsibility to end it now. He has a responsibility to end it when he has made all his enemies his footstool, when he has eradicated all hostile forces against him. And when we understand that, it makes more sense what's going on and why he's doing what he's doing. So the second key to understanding the purpose of tribulation is that God is purging out the false by allowing people to experience, allowing hostile forces, hostile cultural forces arrayed against God, allowing people to experience the consequences of sin, the orchestrating it. Uh, and also making it abundantly clear that this is not heaven through the sanctions of the fall, the creational sanctions of the fall. Now, why does he do that? Primarily, I believe primarily he does that as an act of mercy. When you read the big passages about the wrath of God in the Bible, when we, I think when you, we read those, we have a tendency to think that's talking about second coming, Jesus' second coming, way in the future. But when you look at the big passages about the wrath of God, it always says the wrath of God is being poured out. It's happening now. God is giving people over to the desires of their heart so that they can experience the consequences of sin as an act of mercy so that they will turn and repent. So even God's wrath in this age 
is merciful, is merciful to people. Most of us in this room, some of us in this room were raised in the church and, and, and by God's grace, you've never known a day you don't know, you haven't, didn't know Jesus. We pray that. I pray that for our kids almost every day. But a lot of us in the church, uh, we came to the church out of hardship. God's merciful wrath upon us caused us to break, surrender, repent, and be restored. Praise God. Praise God for that merciful wrath upon us on our lives. We pray when we have guys that we're counseling that are like running out on left field, we pray that God would bomb the beach. <laughs> we pray that God would give them the destruction that they need to wake up and turn around and come home so that someday you'll be sitting there going, man, why am I eating this piggy food? My dad has this big house. I could go be one of his servants. And they come back, and before they even get their I'm so very sorry speech out, the father runs and kisses them and throws a big party. That's what wrath in this age is about. However, it doesn't always work. It doesn't. The, the flip side of that is that God's wrath and God's truth and God's tribulation also hardens people. Probably the saddest verse in all of Revelation, I think, uh, is after the bowl judgments, after God has unleashed Three series of judgments, getting um, progressively worse. It says, in response to that, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues and did not repent and give him glory. And in that sense, then tribulation turns to judgment and it hardens. And that's terribly sad but it's true. Now, having said all that, let me make a quick disclaimer. What I am not saying, and what this is not implying, is that, um, uh, that somehow we should, uh, because there is a purifying effect, because God also uses tribulation to purify his church what i'm not saying is that we should go out and seek after tribulation or suffering or hardship for hardship's sake um, even the lord's prayer the lord's prayer says uh, when we say uh, you know do not lead me into temptation uh, it's saying that means to leave the tribulation and suffering that comes our way up to god to rejoice in the good things that God gives us to rejoice in and to allow God to be the one who controls the tribulation and the suffering in our lives because there's already plenty of it without having to go seek it out, right? Ecclesiastes talks about rejoicing in the Lord, being uh, enjoying the good things that God has given us, even in the midst of understanding that there's a curse. And so but here's the thing. In this action of God against the hostile forces of the world, spiritual war, just like real war, means there's collateral damage. It just means that we are not promised by God uh, to be spared from sin in the world. He doesn't ever promise to protect us and shield us from all of the, the collateral damage of spiritual warfare. What he does promise us 
what he does promise us is that he will purify his people and he'll purify his church. And that's the last, the second part, the second deep purpose of tribulation is that the purpose of God is to purify the true, to purify the true. Now, maybe if you're like me, you're thinking about everything that I just said, about all the hardship that God is orchestrating in the world, especially, uh, you know, spiritual misinformation. Uh, You're looking at, you know, false versions of Christianity that tempt you at the very core of your being. Talking about false doctrines that Satan introduces into the church to lure people out that are custom-made to entice the desires of our heart. Uh, all sorts of versions of Christianity that are socially acceptable, <laughs> that don't require sacrifice, that allow you to remain, uh, to have good reputation in the public sphere. Uh, all the harsh, the, the social pressure that's upon us to reject the truth and the rewards the culture offers to accept what is false and the tribulation and the suffering that tempts you to be angry at God and just give up. Maybe you're looking at all that and you're thinking to yourself, what, if that's all true, that sounds like a crazy hard environment. What are the odds, what are the odds that I'm actually going to be able to hold it together? What are the odds? The odds are that I'm going to fall for one of those false versions of Christianity that I'm going to succumb to social pressure, that I'm going to accept that reward, or that that tribulation and suffering is going to cause me to be so mad at God that I quit. And the answer is, the answer is found in the story of Gideon. I was thinking about this this morning, putting the last parts of the sermon together. If you know the story of Gideon, Gideon was a general, ancient Israel, Assyrians, the enemies of Israel, were going to attack them with 185,000 soldiers or something like that. And Gideon put together 30,000 of his greatest men, and God, God said, nope, that's too many guys. you got to ask, ask everybody who wants to go home, go home. And he whittles it down, whittles it down, whittles it down. It basically whittles it down until Gideon's got 300 guys left. And the point of the story is that the odds are impossible They're completely insurmountable. There's no way they're going to be able to win against the Assyrian army, the nation-crushing Syrian army with 300 guys. And yet they go out and do what God tells them to do, and they had one thing that the Assyrians didn't, and that was they had the protection and the promise of God that they would win, and they did. the Syrian army turned upon one another and destroyed each other and, and Gideon and Israel won. And the same is true for us. God is, promises us that we have his protection and that his promise to us is that he will see us through. He absolutely will see us through. Listen to the gospel reading that we did today again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's one big reason and one reason only why we won't be led astray, why we won't fall, and that is because God has given us his spirit. He has given us his spirit and he is holding on to us. That single truth sometimes is the one thing that keeps me sane when I think about the amount of deception and spiritual misinformation, especially that's out in the world, how would anybody ever come to settle on truth? Because God has given us his spirit and promises to hold us in his hand. Ephesians 13 says that in him also you, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's God's guarantee. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit so they cannot break. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's why we recognize and understand truth. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about these tribulations and these false Christs, He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect, implying it's not. The signs and wonders that that are going to be so astonishingly good that they should, in natural terms, absolutely should fool us. But because we have God's spirit and God's hand upon us, he promises they will not. So what does that mean? Why is that important to know? For a lot of reasons, but one of the most important reasons is that as we are secure in God's promises, knowing that he is holding on to us and will not let us go, we can then be secure in the tribulation that he allows in our life, which is shaping us into the image of Jesus. No matter how hard it gets, even if it gets dark, even if it gets chaotic, even if it gets so difficult, you're so mad at God, we can know that God is good enough to promise us that he is going to hold on to us. He has given us salvation. We can also know that his promise to hold on to us through that and to shape us into the beauty and the image of Christ uh, is also true. That's why we can trust him as we go through the refiner's fire. So, concluding. If you go to, you drive out in a Coronado, if you drive down the Silver Strand, you're often is not to see a group of sandy, discouraged-looking young men carrying around big logs or giant pontoon boats. That's because that is the, the, the Navy training center for SEAL teams. They go through BUDS training on Coronado Boulevard. And that training that difficulty, that hardship that the Navy puts those guys through is specifically engineered to strengthen them and to, and to create in them strength and, 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 and the ability to be in this world or to be in warfare. And the same is true for us. That's like a physical picture of the spiritual war that we're in. God is purifying us through these tribulations and building us up and making us able to have peaceful hearts, even in the worst tribulations, so that no matter how bad it gets, we can honestly say in our hearts, I know 
that God is with me in this. I know that he's good, and I know this is going to work out, and I'm okay. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, sometimes our ability uh, to, to misunderstand what it must mean to be God is astonishing as we try to run the world the way we see fit and shape our own worlds and our own lives the way we see fit and the culture around us encouraging us to do so, Lord. We thank you for your word uh, that teaches us that you are all-powerful. And that means that there's nothing happening that's outside of your control and that everything that is happening to us is being orchestrated by you and you promise that it's for our good and we know that we can trust you because of what Jesus has done for us. So I pray for all of us, Lord, the next time we get so discouraged, maybe even this week, some hardship or financial stress or suffering or interpersonal conflict or fight or disappointment in someone, this causes us to want to give up and just be so mad at you, Lord. I pray you would help us to know that you haven't forgotten us. You are there. You do care. And that even in that moment, you are shaping us and doing something good. If only we hold on and trust you. So help us to do that, Lord. And we pray that you would grow us into the beauty and the image of Jesus through the Spirit so that we can have peaceful hearts in the midst of this age and so that we can share that peace with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.